This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Did you know the Competition Bureau of Canada is taking action to promote right to repair? That's because this action will provide great benefits to Canadian consumers, businesses, and the economy. We advocate for rules and regulations that will make competition work for you. You've probably heard of copyright protection regulations, and they have an important role to play, but they shouldn't create unnecessary barriers to getting things repaired. So what is the Competition Bureau doing to help? Our job is to advocate to regulators and policymakers. We make sure regulations don't create unnecessary barriers to competition, including access to parts, tools, and information. The right to repair would seem like a political no-brainer. Policy designed to extend the life of devices and equipment and the ability to innovate for the benefit of consumers and the environment. Yet somehow, copyright law has emerged as a barrier on that right, limiting access to repair guides and restricting the ability for everyone from farmers to video gamers to tinker with their systems. The government has pledged to address the issue, and Bill C-244, a private member's bill that's making its way through the House of Commons, would appear to be the way it plans to live up to that promise. Two of the most outspoken experts on this issue have been Alyssa Sintavani, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University and the principal investigator of a Shirk-funded research project on the right to repair, and Anthony Rossborough, who's completing his doctoral thesis at the European University Institute in Florence and is set to take up a joint appointment in law and computer science at Dalhousie University later this year. They join me on the podcast to talk about why the time has come for government action, their experience before a House of Commons committee on the bill, and to unpack some of the confusion that's arising from late-breaking amendments. Alyssa and Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having us. Okay, thank you so much both for for joining me. You've really been two of the people who have been preeminent in Canada, I think, over the last while on this issue as we talk about the right to repair and where things stand in Canada. I certainly want to get to the substance of the issue and some of the recent developments that we've seen take place in Canada, particularly in the House of Commons. But, but before we do that, you know, I'm curious what drew both of you to this issue. Why don't we start with uh, Alyssa? Uh, what what got you? What what prompted you to get into the issue of right to repair? Yeah, I've been working on technology, policy, law, and ethics issues for a long time now, Um, looking in particular at the ways in which technology, law, and social practices co-evolve and where tensions oftentimes will arise. Um, And so in terms of my research interests, the right to repair sort of lands in the sweet spot. Uh, But these issues also resonate with me personally, I think, as they do with many others. So breakdown is normal and ultimately um, inevitable. And so too, I think, is this human impulse to repair, to fix things, whether that's a technological object or our relationship or our bodies. Um, So without the ability to fix things, we end up feeling like broken people living in a broken world. And that's not a place where any of us want to be. And so Aside from my interest as a researcher, I'm interested in how right to repair sort of speaks to or reflects um, some of our shared experiences as humans across economic, geographic, political, and social differences. Okay, interesting. Anthony, how about you? 
Yeah, I think, you know, if I go back far enough, my interests uh, kind of come from my family upbringing on the East Coast. Uh, my, my grandfather was a yacht designer and my, my family uh, runs a boat building business. And I spent most of my childhood building and fixing things and learning from my uncle who just has this incredible ability to diagnose and fix just about anything. And so I kind of developed into a love of mechanical work and for old motorcycles. And um, I find it really rewarding and empowering to rebuild and revitalize old things. And um, I guess I've kind of ascribed to that view from Robert Persig's classic uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that, you know, in adopting this belief that repair can teach us a lot of important life skills and can make us better people. Um, but I think my interest in the right to repair as a legal movement started all the way back in 2011 when uh, protections for digital locks uh, in Canada were being debated in Parliament. Um, I was enrolled in an undergraduate course at Dalhousie University at the time, um, focused on the philosophy of computer science. And I just became fascinated with the social, moral, and ethical implications of locking down computers. Um, and so actually I was drawing from a lot of your work at the time, Michael, and uh, I wrote a short paper about how the law could maybe eventually lead to a reality where we're unable to fix uh, our home appliances. And so it's just sort of been on my mind, been on my mind ever since through, through the law school days and, and into my academic work. Okay, thanks. Those are both really interesting answers. And certainly I, I remember uh, those times well, and issues around right to repair, or access to our cell phones and the kind of different things, especially around that, was was really top of mind for a lot of people, you know, more than a decade ago when we were engaged in uh, copyright reform. So I covered this issue in a prior podcast, I think it was a couple of years ago now. And But for those new to the issue, can, can you explain what it involves? I think most people would think, frankly, they're entitled to uh, repair or tinker with the products that they purchase. And I'll be a bit surprised to hear that uh, there may be an impediment. You know, How has this issue sort of come to the fore? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a number of impediments, um, actually. So uh, repair right now in Canada and elsewhere is being impeded by design choices, by business strategies, by restraints on access to material and information resources, um, laws, which I think we'll, we'll talk more about today, and various social factors. And right now we have few policies that make rep uh, repairability and associated concerns like durability and interoperability and so forth um, imperative. So we need repair imperatives. Uh, um, imperatives. Um, most manufacturers, I think, have uh, sort of increased profits at all costs um, kind of business model. And so we need tools to temper that for the good of uh, the economy, for the environment, and for our communities. Okay. Uh, Anthony, did you want to add something? Yeah, I mean, I think at a fundamental level, I think the answer you'll get when you ask a lot of folks about what is the right to repair all about, and the common sort of list of things is about access to parts, tools, and information, including software that, that are necessary to repair the things we own. And so I think while it's true in theory that we are entitled to repair or, in or tinker with the things that we own, the reality is really different, right? And, and Alyssa mentioned some of the, some of the ways manufacturers can um, restrict access to, to parts, tools, and, um, and, and, you know, repair can also be prevented through design and requiring special tools or parts or uh, mechanisms that, that make it really difficult um, for someone to fix something. But I think on, on the whole, right, the repair can mean, can kind of vary along different lines, right? Like whether it's construed as a positive or a negative, right? You know, whether we're trying to impose obligations on manufacturers or merely just enacting negative rights. So it's saying, you know, manufacturers shouldn't be allowed to restrict folks from independent repair um, or whether we should, you know, force them to take certain action. Um, and, and also there's different characterizations of the right to repair, whether it's a 
purely IP issue, whether it's a consumer law issue, whether it's a competition law issue. Uh, of course, the reality is that it's all of those things, but we see different flavors of the right to repair based on the different priorities of, of governments. Okay. I mean, so both of you really succeed in highlight sort of this really broad range of, of, of considerations that come into this issue. Uh, I'm going to narrow things down primarily to the copyright related issue, which, you know, I must admit for most people, they would have no clue why on earth is copyright a factor when you've highlighted all these other things. It's just, it's, it's one of those things. It just feels like it doesn't belong. Uh, so what is the link? How is it that uh, suddenly copy the copyright act or copyright reform has implications for these repair right issues? I mean, if it doesn't sound like it should be a copyright issue, I think that's because it, it probably shouldn't be. Uh, but uh, copyright can can touch on repair in at least two ways. Um, the first is the ability to prevent uh, the dissemination or sharing of published documentation that explains how to repair things. So this could be factory repair manuals or schematic diagrams that are included in other uh, published works um, or other types of information, parts lists um, that assist in repairing things. Uh, and so there's there's precedent for manufacturers um, using you know takedown requests for online uh, online providers that that host um, repair information under the auspices of copyright you know to to make sure that that can't be distributed. Um, but this the the second sort of main way, and I think the subject of our conversation today um, is copyright's embrace of computer software as a protected work um, eventually led to this recognition of access control technological protection measures, sometimes called TPMs, sometimes called digital locks, depending on who you speak to. Uh, and so, you know, these were originally intended to prevent unauthorized copying of digital content at the turn of the millennium. Um, and they could be any technology that prevents access to copyright works, uh, including software. Um, and so in modern times, this usually comes down to encryption. So any device that's computerized, um, which uses encryption to prevent access or modification of that onboard software, be your smartphone or your, or your laptop. Um, but it can also include things like uh, proprietary connectors or cables or physical interfaces of devices that prevent someone from from modifying software. So those are the two main ways um, that copyright kind of touches on repair. Okay, but before we jump into specifically the kind of some of the reforms that we've seen in the house, one of the surprises I think for some people is that somehow the agricultural sector has become uh, one of the leading proponents of dealing with some of these issues. When you know Anthony mentioned the copyright reform more than a decade ago, and it really was primarily about computer electronics and and cell phones that people paid most attention to. But of late, it really the agriculture sector has really been, I think, at, you know, at the forefront of highlighting some of the concerns. You know, how do they come to this issue? I mean, as as remote as it might be copyright and repair, it feels even more remote that somehow uh, the farming community, the agriculture sector would have copyright concerns in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we're seeing is that um, an increasing sort of range of devices and equipment are being computerized, and that includes things like tractors, right? Um, and so in terms of why uh, the agriculture sector has played such a, an, a large and important role in the right to repair movement, I think fundamentally boils down to the fact that it's a really compelling story, right? Like, you know, we have the situation where we have farmers who, you know, work with the land and produce food that we all need to survive um, and having their sort of practices of repair and maintenance modification, things that they've always sort of done being impeded in these really bizarre ways by a manufacturer who's sort of um, co-opting copyright law to do things that just offend, I think, common sense. Um, and so it's a really compelling story. 
Um, there's also, I think, uh, been a lot of sort of um, obvious and well-documented overreach by manufacturers like John Deere, who have a concentration of power in the sector. Um, and so there's like, you know, we have a lot of evidence about some of these egregious practices uh, that are taking place. Like I said, agriculture is a is a critical sector, and the consequences of impediments to repair can be extreme when we're talking about agriculture. So, you know, during a planting or a harvesting um, season, time is of the essence. And so, if there's a delay in a farmer being able to have their equipment working, that can be disastrous um, and cost a lot of money and re uh, result in crop loss. Um, in addition, I think the last point that I'll make here before uh, Anthony jumps in is that we've seen that farmers are really great um, at advocating for themselves. They're really sophisticated about their work, about their equipment, and they have, you know, developed a really strong sort of collective grassroots um, organization around these issues and have been excellent spokespeople for the issue more broadly. Okay, I, mean, that, I think that that does a nice job of pulling all of that together. So that that effective advocacy and and that compelling story has led to the Canadian government taking on this issue. And frankly, uh, over the decades since the some of the major reforms, the idea that this would sort of steadily move towards almost the very top of the list is uh, is an interesting phenomenon in of itself. You know, let, why don't we start with where is the Canadian government on this issue? Because I know that it, it has been now referenced certainly in the most recent budget. The, the Canadian government has been sort of debating and considering the right to repair in various forms for almost 25 years. And much of that early work was focused on the automotive industry, uh, led principally by, you know, MP Brian Nasse. Um, and so as familiarity with the right to repair has grown, um, thanks to, you know, advocacy from folks like farmers, um, the clearest recognition of the right to repair in Canada came part of the, uh, the Liberal Party of Canada's 2021 electoral platform. Uh, and uh, there, the, the Liberals promised to implement uh, a right to repair, focused mostly on home appliances. Um, and as part of that promise, they identified a few ways of actually implementing it and what it means. And the first was a tax credit for home appliance repairs. Um, the second was measures to better inform Canadians about the environmental impacts of consumer products, they've said. Um, so not necessarily repairability of products, but uh, about the environmental impacts of products. Um, and, and finally, the third was to amend the Copyright Act to ensure that the repair of digital devices is not restricted. Um, so, uh, and looking at how they've done on those three fronts over the last few years, I, so that the tax credit um, is apparently forthcoming in the 2024 budget. Uh, and Bill C244, which is kind of the impetus for our chat today, seems to be the most concerted effort to deal with the copyright issue. Um, but uh, yeah, we've yet to see much issue or movement really on how consumers will be better informed about the repairability or environmental impact of, of devices. Um, but overall, the government seems fairly committed to, to pushing the agenda forward on the right to repair. But uh, I think, you know, personally, I think a lot more leadership is needed uh, in playing a kind of unifying role with the provinces and dealing with the consumer protection issues. Um, and, uh, you know, not just looking at it purely as a copyright issue. Uh, and, and kind of an easy slam dunk win from a legislative political perspective, but actually dealing with repairability and its, its kind of more complex reality.
Okay. Uh, I mean, and, th- and that's a fair point, but as someone who focuses on, on copyright a lot, you know, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when you focus a lot <laughs> on copyright, everything looks like a, a copyright issue to be solved. So, so we've got this bill C244, which for those that pay attention to even the numbering with respect to bills, they'll note that's a pretty high number, which reflects the fact that it's a starts life as a private member's bill. Uh, Alyssa, can, can you walk us through, you know, who introduced the bill uh, and what does it do and, and what, what have we seen progress so far, uh, in the House of Commons. Sure. So that was um, introduced by, and I apologize, I may mispronounce um, the name, but uh, MP Meow. And uh, this bill provides an exemption to um, the provision of the Canadian Copyright Act that deals with um, technological protection measures, and it would allow um, for the circumvention of TPMs for diagnosis, maintenance, and repair. Um, And so Uh, In its initial sort of um, instantiation, uh, this bill, uh, I I really liked um, this bill in particular because it was really sort of broadly worded. It wasn't industry specific, and it focused on the range of activities that we're really interested in promoting and protecting here. Um, There's been a subsequent amendment, which has narrowed and carved that out a little bit, which we can talk about. It might be useful, actually, just to provide even... Uh, a bit more background, you know, the uh, sure. uh, on the anti-circumvention rules and and why we need why we need an exception for this in the first place. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we talked about TPMs and and uh, well, or digital locks, or whichever la- label you'd like to use, as as being you know principally intended to prevent copying or unauthorized reproduction infringement of of copyright works, but. You know, with the the kind of widespread proliferation of of embedded computer systems, and, and what I mean by that is devices that are now basically specific purpose computers uh, or smart devices. This means that copyright governance through software is now kind of spread throughout the world. It's now become ubiquitous that everything now kind of has a software component, and that software can determine how the entire device functions, whether it works with other devices, whether you're able to maintain, diagnose, or repair it uh, as well. And so, so what we're seeing really is that TPMs are becoming a real impediment to repair. And one of the reasons that, you know, that agricultural equipment has become this big issue is, uh, you know, on a technical level, but the problem is really through onboard computers um, serve as a sort of point of authentication. So all of the parts of the device or the, or the machine um, are serialized. They all, have a, they all have a serial number. And if any of them are replaced or modified, um, they have to be authenticated by the onboard computer for the entire device to work. And this model is, is, you know, is, is classic in the automotive industry, but it's new to things like your, your telephone or your computer. Um, it's, it's a new kind of design model that sort of imbues a lot of stuff with copyright governance. So now like the technical functioning of physical devices is now the subject of copyright law. Um, and so what this bill is trying to do is to deal with those impl- downstream implications um, in, the, in the context of repair, maintenance, and diagnosis. Um, yeah, so it's it's a targeted exemption for to kind of allow those specific activities when we're, we're dealing with devices that have embedded computer software. Okay, so that's the that's that's what it's designed to do. Now, both of you appeared before the committee that was studying the bill. Uh, you know, what to, I'd love to hear about that experience. What what did you have to say, and, and what kind of response did you get from committee members? Alyssa, why don't you get us started? Sure. Um, yeah, no, it was a really fantastic experience, actually. Um, uh, in part because I think there's widespread support for right to repair reforms. Um, so it was nice to sort of participate in, a, in an important discussion where it seemed like everybody was kind of on the same team, 
which doesn't happen that often, right? Um, so in terms of the sort of things that I wanted to emphasize in my statement, my comments to the, to the standing committee, you know, I really wanted to drive home the fact that the purpose of copyright is to benefit society by promoting the creation and sharing of creative and artistic works. It's not to, uh, you know, enable manufacturers to protect their business model. And that's sort of essentially what manufacturers like John Deere are, are trying to use copyright to do. So, um, you know, it's absurd that things like tractors, tanks, washing machines, wheelchairs um, can uh, have, you know, the, consumer's ability to to repair them be impeded simply by you know embedding a little bit of code into their into those devices so i see this bill as you know um carving out a necessary sort of common sense exemption to the act's anti-circumvention provisions um i also spoke to some of the opposition arguments um, in my statement and oftentimes the kinds of arguments we hear in opposition to this bill are things that deal with um, risks to the environment, to safety, and to security. And so what I wanted to make really clear to the committee was that, you know, those kinds of arguments are barking up the wrong tree, essentially. <laughs> we have other laws on the books that could address those concerns, but copyright is not the law that we should be looking to, um, to you know, protect those interests. Um, in addition, you know, I noted that the only way that this bill could impact things like emissions, safety, and security would be that if the software that governs repair also governs emission safety and security. And so I don't think that these systems are being bundled together, but if they are, you know, that's a sign that uh, there's a design flaw that manufacturers need to remedy. Um, in addition, I talked a lot about sort of um, uh, sort of consumer interests and consumer uh, rights. Um, I talked about how manufacturers' tendency here to position consumers and the third-party repair te technicians that they might choose as threats in some way is really anti-consumer. Um, and I said, you know, to the extent that there are, you know, legitimate security risks posed by sophisticated hackers, um, you know, those are risks that are sort of always going to be present in some respect, um, and they're always going to sort of be able to have tools and techniques at their disposal. Um, and so we shouldn't sort of impede repair on that basis. The last point that I'll make before uh, we hear about Anthony's comments is that um, uh, a lot of opponents sort of suggest that um, enabling repair is somehow um, anti-innovation or would undermine innovation. And what I found through my research and through interviewing lots and lots of people all over Canada and the US and Europe and the global south is that the, pro the process of figuring out what's wrong with something and fi fixing it is hugely innovative, right? So our understanding and our, our evaluation of innovation, I think, in this country has gone awry. We overemphasize things like novelty, newness, and invention, and underemphasize, I think, the sort of skill and learning and adaptive situated problem solving that's required to be able to undertake repairs and fix things when they break. So this bill also, I think, is really pro-innovation, it's pro-consumer, um, and it's, I think, in line with the overall purposes of the Copyright Act. Uh, that, that, that's a pretty great statement in five to seven minutes, I got to tell you. Uh, I've struggled to manage to get that much in in my, some of my opening statements. Uh, Anthony, what, what did you have to say to the committee? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess my my remarks were more focused to kind of within the four walls of, of copyright doctrine and theory. Um, and I think intentionally no, knowing kind of um, how, how Alyssa was was going to approach it and wanting to make sure that it complemented um, what she was saying. But my, my focus was really on, on looking at TPMs that inhibit repair as a misuse of copyright. Uh, and that's, you know, maybe rather than enacting targeted exceptions, permitting repair or other activities, because we know there, there is another bill, sort of a, a parallel bill on the books for interoperability purposes. My recommendation was rather than take this approach at all, um, we should consider amending the act to not extend protection to TPMs that prevent acts unrelated to copyright infringement. So, you know, that, that there should be some nexus between infringement um, and circumvention in, in terms of its lawfulness. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that was, you know, wholeheartedly adopted by the committee, but I mean, that was kind of the, the purpose was to say, you know, we could be here next year talking about some other um, kind of uh, activity that's been restricted by TPMs that has a social and economic benefit that we need to protect. Um, and so that we should, we should kind of deal with this more on the front end. Um, and now a witness for the Electronic Software Association um, raised concerns that the bill could be relied upon to allow uh, infringement under the auspices of copyright. So the concern was that repair could be used as this excuse, right, to engage in all of these infringing acts. Um, and I think my entire point was really to refute this idea. Um, and that what we're concerned about here is, in fact, manufacturers preventing activities like repair or, or other or maintenance um, under the auspices of copyright. And, and so um, what we should be really worried about is not, you know, characterizing um, infringing activities as repair, but uh, manufacturers characterizing repair as as somehow subject to copyright. Um, and I also responded to some concerns uh, raised by opponents of the bill and this paralleled what, what Alyssa was saying about, you know, whether cybersecurity or public health and safety should be taken into consideration when we're talking about repair exceptions. Um, and so, you know, e even if these concerns are well-founded, which, which I think is, is very questionable, you know, it's really not the role of copyright to be regulating in these areas. Um, you know, we have a, no a number of other tools at our disposal and, and copyright law is kind of a special thing, right? It's, it's, it's a grant of, of property rights for, for very specific subject matter. And so we shouldn't use it as this kind of um, catch-all regulatory framework that can police a whole bunch of conduct that has nothing to do with, with expressive or creative works. And so that was the kind of cautionary message um, behind, behind my submissions. Okay. Well, I'm glad somebody said it. And it's important, I think, to make that point before committee. Now, Alyssa, you mentioned that you liked the bill when it started. You like it a little bit less or maybe a lot less uh, after it's gone through the amendment process. And, and both of you co-authored a piece that called the amendments coming out of committee unnecessarily broad and warned that it could be used to prevent Canadians from repairing some of their own devices. Can you explain you know, what changed in the bill, who was behind it, and, and what some of your concerns are? Sure. So, yeah, this amendment sort of came out of nowhere from my perspective. Um, I don't know, Anthony, how, how you saw it. But um, so if we think about the uh, Bill C-244 as providing an exemption to the TPM provisions, this amendment sort of provides a, a carve out from that exemption um, for uh, products that have uh, sound recording um, embedded in them. And so I think this is largely motivated, I mean, on its face by the content industries wanting to, you know, exercise their control. Um, so, you know, movies, um, music, video games, right? Like these industries that traditionally have sound recordings as like a sort of critical central element of their products and services. Um, so this would, uh, this would remove that repair, um, uh, 
right, I guess, um, from those kinds of products. But the points that Anthony and I were were making in our piece that you mentioned is that this is, you know, essentially providing manufacturers with an incentive to sort of embed sound recordings and musicality now in all sorts of devices that they make. Um, so I have a, a tea kettle that already sings me a song when the water is done boiling. We have toilets, we have all sorts of devices that will play a little jingle or, um, or music. And so now I think not only are we going to have homes filled with, you know, unnecessarily computerized devices that lock us out, they're also going to be singing at us, I think, while they do it. So your concern sparked a response from MP Meow soon after we recorded our initial conversation. Um, clearly, the the piece that the two of you wrote, uh, you know, got got received some attention and, and got the attention of government, uh, and wanted to ensure that that perspective was included in in our episode. Um, so, how does the office or the government explain the exception that's been added to this bill, and what do you make of it, Anthony? Yeah, so uh, you know, our interpretation of the bill originally was was sort of concerned that this might be overly limiting in in terms of the devices that uh, that the exception applies to. So it would only apply to devices, for example, with embedded sound recordings. Was one concern we raised? Um, we, I guess the interpretation of the government, anyway, is is quite the opposite. That you know, it's only devices with uh, works or embedded sound recordings that form, and in the language of the bill, part of the product. Um, would be would, would find some sort of protection from the bill in terms of repair. Um, so this is quite quite a different perspective from what we have <laughs> taken originally. Um, but I mean, there's still some limiting factors with this bill. There's still some very um, confusing aspects, um, even with even a, adopting that interpretation. Okay, um, Alyssa, you have you have, have any thoughts on that? I have to say that that sounds like a pretty puzzling interpretation, given that at a minimum, as we discussed earlier, the agriculture sector was was one of the lead proponents of this legislation, and and that interpretation would seem to suggest that uh, that their concerns aren't even being addressed in this bill at all. Um, Alyssa, how how do you see what the government has to say and where it leaves this bill? Yeah, so um, I mean, if it's true that this a uh, sort of um, exemption on diagnosis, maintenance, and repair only applies to sound recordings or or products that have sound recordings or performances embedded in them. I mean, that is such a big diversion, I think, from where this bill started and what its intentions were. Um, so my reaction to that is like, how does this possibly make any sense? Like, I really don't think um, that it makes sense. And so um, what I would say, though, is that um, what this amendment has done, I think pretty clearly is uh, added a lot of additional unnecessary confusion into this process. Um, I spent some time reviewing the bill and the amendment and thinking about you know, what the original TPM provisions in the act say and um, revisiting it in this way um, sort of highlights, I think some additional concerns for me in addition to this sort of curious focus on sound recordings. So if we look at um, the TPM provision, which is 41.1, there's sort of three subsections there. And that section says no person shall uh, circumvent a TPM. That's section A. And so this amendment um, that we're talking about to Bill C244 is dealing with that subsection um, specifically. The Two subsections that follow are slightly different. B deals with people who offer services to the public 
to circumvent TPMs. And C deals with uh, those who sort of um, traffic in uh, tools or uh, services that would circumvent TPMs. And so um, my concern at this point is really that what this amendment is doing is potentially um, excluding um, those who you know, create the uh, circumvention tools from having coverage under this act, which would be a huge problem because as we know, um, individual users are, are most likely not gonna have the sort of technical skill to be able to circumvent TPMs. Now, I will note that the amendment has a section that says for clarity, um, this, uh, this amendment also applies to sort of people who are doing it on, on the user or consumer's behalf. But it's not clear to me that even with that clarification that that would cover um, independent service technicians or who are, who are sort of performing this work for commercial purposes or for um, those who sort of, um, whose business is to sort of manufacture or make these circumvention tools. Assuming it gets through the house and and it sounds like at some point in time it it will if it's gone through committee and it got that kind of support, uh, I guess the Senate the Senate lies ahead and you know as we as we look ahead, uh, you know you have any thoughts on on the possibility or prospect that we'll get similar kind of hearings at the Senate and perhaps a willingness for the for that sober second thought for the Senate to to revisit at least some of those issues to say hold on a second um, the intent here was not to to narrowly carve out. Uh, certain certain kinds of devices that, in many respects, may be some of the most important ones for for everyday consumers, um, and find that 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 in fact the status quo is in some ways almost embedded, where there's been an attempt after more than a decade to fix the issue, and suddenly we're we're right back where we started. Um, yeah, Alyssa or Anthony, you have any thoughts on, on on sort of what comes next in that regard? Um, well, I you know it's hard to kind of guess. Uh, what our chances are for improvements from here. But um, I can say that over the past couple of years, I, I have been given the impression that senators are very um, keen to deal with the right to repair. And um, uh, I mean, I guess without saying more than, I, than I'm allowed to say, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been contacted by folks who are very interested in pursuing legislation uh, to enact the right to repair at all levels of, of government. <laughs> and um, I, have, I have some faith that there is some interest among the senators to ensure that the way we pursue this issue in Canada is done right. Um, and so uh, one can only have an optimistic point of view uh, if, if one wants to see um, the right thing happen. Uh, I, I think it's not a foregone conclusion that the bill will be adopted as is, um, or, or sorry, take force into law as is, but um, I guess in some ways we're, we're kind of relying on that sober second thought and, and some, some really close discussion um, among senators. Okay, Alyssa, you have any any closing thoughts on both the this longstanding battle to 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 get this onto the legislative agenda and uh, what comes next? Sure. Um, what I would say is that you know I am hopeful. I, I have sort of an irrational hope, undying hope that uh, that this will go through uh, without being carved up too much. Um, as we've seen in other places like the U.S. and other sort of jurisdictions, there is a tendency for these like well-intentioned bills to be sort of chopped up into bits um, at the last minute. So hopefully we can avoid um, repeating that mistake here in Canada. Um, the other thing that I'll say here is that, you know, we've been focusing on copyright law, of course, but 
Um, this bill isn't a silver bullet to solve uh, right to repair issues here. Um, even if we just limit it to sort of the legal impediments, we also need to look at making some modifications and changes to competition law and also at the provincial level to, um, to consumer protection and co contract sorts of laws. And I just mentioned here that um, a bill was just um, introduced in Quebec, uh, I think two days ago, Bill 29, that at the provincial level would um, uh, create a legal warranty of good working order, I think they call it, which is a new sort of legal warranty. It would also um, uh, require um, replacement parts and proprietary tools and information to be made available. And it would um, limit or extinguish actually planned obsolescence. So uh, it's great to see that there's activity happening both at the federal level and at the provincial level. And I hope that other provinces sort of follow Quebec's lead um, and start taking matters into their own hands. Okay. Well, listen, both of you have been really at the forefront of, of putting this issue on the agenda. And as you say, it's a it's more than just a copyright issue. There's a, clearly a role for provinces uh, and clearly a role for non-copyright related aspects here as well. Uh, and so thank you for the for both of your efforts in that regard. And thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.